Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 5, 20 and 21. The entirety of human history could be summed up under those two headings, the increase of sin and the abundance of grace. History is the story of man's persistent rebellion against God and of God's persevering, triumphant grace toward man. Ever since the fall, sin has been increasing upon the earth. Not even the flood could stem the tide of sin. So ingrained is it within the sinful nature of man. So intrinsic in our very natures. Mankind has not improved over the millennia of our existence. Modern man today is no more righteous than ancient or primitive cultures. Our sin is not less than theirs. It has simply grown more sophisticated. But even as man has continued to invent new ways to sin, continued to plunge ever deeper into the depths of depravity, the grace of God has continued to abound. Why? Why does God continue to persevere in grace with such a wicked, ungrateful people? The answer is given in verse 21 of Romans 5. God has determined that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is writing a story upon the pages of human history, and that story will culminate in the reign, the triumphant reign of His grace, resulting in everlasting life for God's elect through the righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord, redounding to the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ, throughout endless ages." As I thought and prayed about how to conclude this foundational study in the opening chapters of Genesis, that phrase from the end of Romans kept ringing through my head. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I think that's a pretty good summary of Genesis 1-11. to Where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. I think that those two phrases can sum up the passage that is before us this morning. I think that's why they exist, to show that truth. Genesis 9-11 to is not merely a bridge to get us from Noah to Abraham. It is the record of the increase of sin upon the earth. Filling, corrupting, infecting every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation in every corner of the globe. And as we're reading, just as we might have been tempted to think that all hope of redemption is lost, as once again in the aftermath of the flood we find 
Genesis 8.21, that just as before, every intention of every thought of every heart in every man in every place is only evil continually. Just as it appears that sin reigns in death over all humanity. Just when human history seems at its darkest and its bleakest, God reaches down and He calls out one man out of Ur, out of Babylon, out of the east. And God calls him and promises to make him the father of a multitude of nations, promises him that his offspring will outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, promises him that he will inherit the promised land, Eden, and promises him that in that place God will dwell in his midst once again, and he and his descendants will be God's people, and God himself will be their God. Just when it appears that sin reigns in death, grace appears and begins to reign in life. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning in these chapters, and we will do so under those two headings. As we focus on these last three chapters of this opening section of Genesis, I want us to look first at the increase of sin upon the earth. And then I want us to look at the abundance of grace that appears in the call to Abraham and begins to reign through Abraham's seed. So we'll begin with the increase of sin, which is portrayed in three ways in these chapters. First, it is implicit in the genealogies that dominate these chapters, and then it is made explicit in these two narrative sections that are interspersed between the genealogies. Alright, so let's begin with those genealogies and the dispersion of the nations over the face of the earth. There are four genealogies, actually, in these three chapters. There are two brief genealogical narratives that bookend this passage. One at the very beginning, describing Noah's immediate family. That's chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. And the second, at the very end, describing Terah's, Terah being Abraham's father, Terah's immediate family, chapter 11, 27 to 32. So two short genealogies. And in between those two bookends are two very lengthy geological records. The first one is found in Genesis 10, verses 1 to 32. It's a passage commonly referred to as the table of nations. And it records the descendants of Noah in their geographic dispersions. It records the descendants of Japheth, who inhabited the the Mediterranean lands, verses 2 to 5. The descendants of Ham, who inhabited northern Africa, Egypt, and Mesopotamia, verses 6 to 14. The descendants of Canaan, who inhabited the land of promise, verses 15 to 20, and the descendants of Shem, who inhabited the lands of the east, verses 21 to 31. The second lengthy genealogical record runs from Genesis 11.10 to 11.26 and traces the line of descent through ten generations from Shem to Terah, the father of Abraham. Now, I'm not going to say much with regard to these genealogies, 
Uh, Mike asked me when we were planning on Tuesday, um, planning this worship service, if I wanted to read any scripture, and I said, yes, I want to read all of the genealogies from start to finish. He told me no, so, so we're left with this. One point I do wish to make is that what we have in Genesis 10 and 11 probably does not represent a complete and comprehensive genealogical picture. And I think that's important as we think about human history and the way that the Bible aligns up with that. They might be complete and comprehensive, but it is likely that they are not. Rather, what we probably have in the genealogies of Genesis 5, Genesis 10, and Genesis 11 are what are called compressed or selective genealogies. In other words, Genesis 5, 10, and 11 probably spans millennia rather than mere centuries. Now, there are several reasons for thinking this. I'm going to give you four this morning. Number one, there are two types of ancient genealogies, right? Answering the question, how, what are we to think of these genealogies that are interspersed throughout Genesis 1 through 11? I'm giving you four reasons I think they're selective, encompassing many millennia, not, not 10,000 years, but five, 6,000 years. Reason number one, there are two types of ancient genealogies, those that trace lineage and those that chart alliances. The first kind is the type found in Genesis 5 through 11 where direct lines of ancestry are traced from one name like Adam to a second name like Noah or from Shem to Terah. The second type is what we have in Genesis chapter 10 where instead of lines of descent we have more like branches of a tree that are charting ethnic families in a more geopolitical context. So Old Testament commenter, commentator uh, Alan Ross writes, quote, Genesis 10 is a structured arrangement of the important nations of the ancient world. The writer clearly is emphasizing the development of those nations of primary importance to Israel, end quote, Israel for whom the book of Genesis was first written, all right? So there's different types of genealogies in the ancient world, and I think we have both represented in Genesis 1 to 11. Reason number two, it was common in these ancient genealogies to employ what is known as a selective genealogy. A genealogy, in other words, that doesn't include every name or every generation or every person. Another word for this is telescoping, wherein a genealogy acts like a telescope, compressing the distance from the beginning to the end by skipping several generations in between. And this is very possible, indeed very common in the Hebrew language, because the word for son in Hebrew, b'nai, can refer to an actual physical child, or it can refer to a, a descendant somewhere down the line, or it can refer to a successor in terms of inheritance, or it can refer to even a nation as a whole. Likewise, the Hebrew word for father, yalad, may mean the direct father as in the husband of my mother, or it may mean an a grandfather or an ancestor or a forefather or the founder of a nation. These words, son, father, they are fluid and they are elastic 
in their meaning. What this means is that the genealogies of Genesis 5, 10, and 11 may be, without doing violence to the language, much compressed, encompassing far more generations than first appears in the English text. This happens, by the way, without a doubt, in other genealogies in the Bible. For instance, Ruth chapter 4, 1 Chronicles 6, Ezra 7, Matthew chapter 1. Third reason, the number of generations in Genesis 5 and 11 and the number of nations in Genesis 10 give the appearance of selective structuring. Genesis 5 records 10 generations from Adam to Noah. Likewise, Genesis 11 records 10 generations from Shem to Abraham. This reminds us, if we're readers of the Old Testament, this reminds us of David's genealogy in Ruth 4 and Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, both of which we know to be compressed when we compare them with other genealogies. Both Samuel, who's the probable author of Ruth, and Matthew, in the writing of, of Jesus' genealogy, they left out generations in order to fit their purpose. They wanted to maintain a thematic structure. Samuel's purpose was to trace ten descendants up to the time of David. And Matthew's purpose was to set the, the genealogy of Jesus in three sets of 14 generations from David to Abraham. Okay, they had a purpose and they had the genealogical record before them, and they took out generations in order to make the genealogy fit their thematic purpose. Well, likewise, the number of nations represented in Genesis 10 amounts to 70, which is an important and symbolic number in the Bible. The number 70 represents completeness, and therefore the fact that Genesis 10 contains the origin of 70 nations is probably symbolic of the, from these families came all the nations of the earth, which is what I take Genesis 10, 1 to 32 to mean. From these nations spread abroad on the earth, from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Finally, fourth reason, I think that what we have in these genealogies is a selective compressed record and not a complete and comprehensive record, is that if you merely add up the years of the Genesis 11 genealogy, 10 generations from Shem to Abram, you're going to run into some problems. Not insurmountable problems, but problems. For instance, if you take Genesis 11 as a literal, precise genealogy instead of one that's been structured, selective, telescoped, Abraham was born just 292 years after the flood, which in itself is not a problem until you do the math and realize that this means that Noah would have been alive for the first 58 years of Abraham's life, and Shem would have outlived Abraham by 35 years, which is not strictly impossible, but it does seem improbable. When I read the Genesis narrative, particularly from chapter 12 onward, I don't get the idea that Abraham, if he had been so inclined, could have packed up his son Isaac and, and taken him east to go visit his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Shem, who could have sat Isaac upon his knee and told him the story of surviving the great flood in the ark with all the animals. 
I think it's far more probable that the genealogies are selective. They're, they're structured. They're telescoped. They encompass three to four millennia rather than three or four centuries. Which, by the way, accords much better with the archaeological data which we have, data which has unearthed sophisticated ancient Sumerian civilizations in, in the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent, uh, dating from, no, from 4000 B.C., and the earliest Egyptian civilizations to around 3500 to 3100 B.C., both of which, by the way, would have had to have existed after the flood. All right, so what are we doing here? Let me just sum up the last 10 minutes and the last 18 weeks. In Genesis, in, in Genesis 1 to 11, we've been trying to do two things. We've been trying to approach the text of Genesis apologetically, okay? That is answering some questions and some objections that sometimes are raised against the text of Genesis. So we're, we're, we're taking, taking stock and making some apologetic arguments. But we're trying not to get so caught up in apologetics that we miss the theological thrust of these chapters. These chapters weren't meant to be debated. They were meant to be preached. They were meant to be heard, to be embraced, and they were meant to shape and transform our faith and our lives. So we've been doing both. All right? So what I'm doing with these genealogies is I'm saying... The answers in Genesis, and I have a lot of respect for the answers in Genesis, folks, and I think they're right about a lot of things. I think they're possibly wrong on the dating. The answers in Genesis website says that Noah was born in the year 2348 B.C. and that, no, 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 I'm sorry, that Abraham was born 292 years after the flood. The flood occurred in the year 2348 B.C. That's if you take the genealogies as strictly literal and not as telescoped, which obviously genealogies in the Bible are, at least other genealogies. Well, you run into some problems. You'll have, you'll have people who say, listen, we have very good evidence that there were Mesopotamian civilizations that don't appear to have been destroyed by a cataclysmic flood dating from 4000 B.C. And we have ancient Egyptian civilizations that don't appear to have been destroyed by the cataclysmic flood dating from 3500 to 3100 B.C. And you're saying the flood took place in 2348 B.C. My answer to that is, is that the biblical genealogies are not to be taken as precisely one following the other. They are structured. They are telescoped. And that's their intention. Moses intended to take ten generations from Adam to Noah. Why? Because ten is a number symbolic of completeness. Moses decided to take ten generations from Shem to Abraham. Why? And include those in his genealogy. Why? Because ten is a number of completeness, and it mirrors very well, by the way, with the ten generations from Adam to Noah. So don't let dates throw you off of your, of your guard when, when dealing with questions related to Genesis. There are answers, and there are very good answers, biblical answers, inerrancy answers to some of those objections. All right? With that, I want to close the book on this apologetic portion 
of the Genesis study. And I want to say that there's something far more important than the question of how many generations are found in Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 5. And that is that they bear an overarching point, both of those generations, or both of those genealogies. Genesis 5 showed the decline of the righteous line into sin, such that by the end, there is none righteous upon the earth save one person, and that's Noah. The same thing can be said of the genealogies in Genesis 10 and 11. The overarching point is, as people spread once again over the face of the earth after the flood, so did sin. It happened prior to the flood. It happened following the flood. As we observed last week in the Noahic Covenant, the essential nature of man did not change with the flood. Prior to the flood... We read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. We find an almost identical statement after the flood, Genesis 8.21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nothing has changed And so it was that as the descendants of Noah, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth spread over the face of the earth, sin spread with them. Which is why, just a few weeks ago, we said that everywhere you go, in every corner of the globe, you find remnants of this flood story in the traditions of ancient cultures. And it's why, everywhere you go, in every corner of the globe, you find idolatry, immorality, perversion, violence, greed, and every other fruit of sin dominating. As the people spread, so did sin, because we carried the disease within ourselves. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Or as Paul said in Romans 5, as sin increased. But not only is the increase of sin implied in these genealogical records, it is made explicit in the two narratives that are interspersed between the genealogies. The first narrative is that sordid account of Noah's vineyard at the end of Genesis 9. So I want you to turn to Genesis 9 and verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. There are two sins on display in this passage. There's a sin of Noah and there's a sin of Ham. Noah's sin is obvious, but interestingly, it's not the focus of the narrative, is it? It's the sin of Ham, rather, that lives in infamy and merits the curse. But just because Noah's drunkenness is not explicitly condemned in this text, I think we're meant to view his his actions as just evidently despicable and destructive, such that nothing needs to be said. Now, I don't intend this morning to launch into 
some long invective about the evils of alcohol. I don't believe alcohol is evil in and of itself, nor do I believe consuming alcohol is forbidden in Scripture. But what is expressly condemned is the behavior that alcohol so frequently leads to when partaken of in excess. Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul uses a word to describe drunken behavior. He commands there, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Ooh, that's a good word. That's a word we don't use very much anymore, but we ought to because it's so descriptive of our culture. We live in a debauched culture. Debauchery. Asotia in the Greek. The King James renders this word excess. New American Standard has dissipation. The Greek word refers to riotous, dissolute, unruly, disordered, profligate behavior. The image that is conjured up by this word is that of a middle-aged man slobbering drunk and passed out lying naked in his tent. That's where the excess of alcohol takes you. It is unholy, it is dishonorable, it is disgusting behavior that ought to have no place among the covenant people. In fact, it is so out of step with the regenerate lifestyle of the new covenant that the New Testament makes clear that those for whom such drunkenness is characteristic behavior have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Think about that. That's a pretty startling statement. But it's there in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, in Galatians 5, 19, and 21. Be not deceived. Those who practice such things in heedless drunkenness will not inherit the kingdom of God. Dissipation, debauchery, is utterly inconsistent with the heart of one who's been born again. Listen, there is a time for everything under the sun. There's a time to weep. And there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. And there's a time to dance. And for some people, they find laughing and dancing quite hard without the gift of wine. Throughout Scripture, wine is linked with times of rejoicing at places like weddings. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, where Jesus turned something like 250 gallons of water into 250 gallons of the best wine. Why? Because a wedding is a place to rejoice. It's indicative of the everlasting kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth. Jeremiah 31.12, Amos 9.13-14. Psalm 104.15 says that God causes the earth to bring forth wine to gladden the heart of man. I'm not a teetotaler, and neither was Jesus, but the Bible contains severe warnings about the dangers of alcohol in leading men to the type of behavior evidenced in Genesis chapter 9. Dissolute, dishonorable, detestable, debauched behavior. Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. 
the mother of King Lemuel, who a lot of scholars think is a nickname for Sam, or, uh, Solomon, has this warning for her son in Proverbs 31.3. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Point, drunkenness leads to bad decisions. Case in point, Lot became drunk and committed incest with his two daughters and wound up fathering the Moabites and the Ammonites, two of the wickedest peoples to ever defile the promised land. Drunkenness so ripped Noah's family apart, causing an irreconcilable rift between Noah and his son and between Ham and his brothers leading to a curse upon Canaan and all of his descendants. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch, and I don't think the Bible leads us away from this conclusion or forbids us to come to this conclusion, that in one sense, you can trace the sins of the Canaanites. All you have to do is read the book of Leviticus, and you'll see a listing of the sins of the peoples who inhabited the land prior to the conquest, like child sacrifice, cult prostitution, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, debauchery. I think those can be traced back to Noah's debauchery in his tent. So a word to the wise. Be wise and be warned when it comes to alcohol. Don't be a legalist and don't be a drunkard. Many of you can attest that drunkenness leads to devastation and heartache for generations to come, and it did with Noah. But it's Ham's sin that receives the attention in this narrative. While Noah's sin is drunkenness, which led to debauchery, Ham's sin was dishonoring his father. If you read this narrative and you think that Ham was treated unjustly, you probably don't think enough of God's fifth commandment. God takes the honoring of your parents very, very seriously because it's indicative of the degree to which you honor Him. Many throughout history have read much darker tones into Ham's offense, concluding that homosexual or incestuous activity is suggested. Um, you may read something like that in, your, in the comments of your study Bible. I don't think that's the case. Um, the, the, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, are not shy when they want to portray that behavior. They do it. And I don't think they needed to be, I don't think Moses needed to be cute about or sly about suggesting it here. I think what you have here is that Ham dishonored his father simply by exposing him to shame. Instead of covering his shame, he made a joke out of him. He made a joke out of his father, the righteous one, to whom he owed his life and that of his wife and that of his unborn children. He took advantage of Noah's compromised and vulnerable condition to make fun of his father in the presence of his brothers. Ham's behavior toward his father is contrasted with that of his brothers who honored Noah even in his shameful condition. 
You don't just honor your parents when they're being honorable. You honor them even when they're being dishonorable. And that's what Japheth and Shem do. They, they put a blanket on their shoulders, they walk backwards, and they cover him up without looking upon him, which was a very dishonorable thing to do. As a result, Ham and his son Canaan were cursed. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now if you wonder why Canaan is singled out, why does he curse Canaan and not Ham. Let me suggest to you that it's probably because Noah is speaking prophetically by the Spirit. This happened from time to time with the patriarchs. I remind you of when Joseph blessed his 12 sons and some of his blessings turned out to be cursings in Genesis 49 and 50. In other words, Canaan and his descendants would come to inhabit the land of promise. The land that was very important to the Lord God. The land of Eden from which he had expelled his people and to which he would bring his people back. And if you remember that the original readers of the book of Genesis, the ones who would originally have sat down and read these words and would have sat down and read them prior to the conquest of the land... I think you begin to see why Noah speaks of Canaan by the Spirit prophetically. He's providing a justification for the conquest of the land. In other words, this land does not belong to Canaan. This land that I'm giving you does not belong to them. It belongs to you. And here's the story of where it was given into your possession. Genesis chapter 9. For our purposes, however... The narrative reveals that God takes the honoring of your father and mother very, very seriously. He did at the dawn of human history, and he does still today. And we'll talk through next week in our Connect time how that works itself out in our day and age because honor your father and your mother continues to be a binding exhortation and command upon the people of God today. And it's different when you're in the household and when you're out of the household. But we need to be those who honor our father and mother because if we honor our father, we honor the father. You honor God by honoring the authority that he places over your head. So the account of the vineyard of Noah gives us one glimpse into the increase of sin upon the earth at the beginning of this age after the flood. The second glimpse comes at the beginning of Genesis chapter 11 in the account of the Tower of Babel. Before we read this account, one note needs to be made, all right? The Bible is not as concerned with chronology as we are. It is common in the Bible to find that the narratives of a particular book have been arranged thematically and theologically rather than chronologically. And this is the case in Genesis 10 and 11, okay? If you read at the end of Genesis 10, you get the idea that the nations have already been spread over all the face of the earth, and you come to Genesis 11, and they're all gathering around 
Babylon. What gives? Well, probably Moses, who wrote Genesis 10.32, didn't forget what he was doing when he wrote Genesis 11.1. Probably what is going on is that he's arranging his, his narratives theologically. Chronologically, Genesis 11 and the account of the Tower of Babel occurs sometime after the vineyard scene of Genesis 9, before the dispersion of the nations and languages that is recorded in Genesis 10. How long after that event, we don't know, but it had to be a fairly significant period of time for the number of peoples to have multiplied, but a short enough period of time for them not to have grown too large to be dispersed very widely. So let's look at Genesis 11.1. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. The plain of Shinar refers to the ancient land of Mesopotamia. It's the fertile crescent that you read about in your ancient western civilization. The Tigris and the Euphrates, the conjunction or the land between them uh, in modern-day Iraq, the cradle of human civilization and culture. It was in the plain of Shinar that mankind built a city that would then come to stand for all of godless humanity that would come after. The city of Babel, or Babylon. Verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. All right, so it's at the dawn of the Bronze Age. Human civilization is beginning to flourish. Rapid advances in technology and architecture and language and writing are allowing for a swift and expansive growth of societies. It must have seemed to them at that day, much like it seems today, that nothing is impossible for us. And it was in that cultural milieu that the sin of man again just bursts forth in a spectacular act of rebellion against their sovereign creator, just as it had back at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. I want you to notice the similarities between the two, in fact. The sin of Adam in the Garden, you will be like God, is now being replayed at Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves that, and a tower that reaches up into the heavens. This is God-making again. The flood and the worldwide destruction that it brought did nothing to erase the irresistible, depraved impulse that resides within the heart of man to turn away from the sovereign creator and to try to be our own gods and to make names for ourselves, to do what we want to do, to go where we want to go, to be what we want to be. Evidently, something greater than floodwaters is needed to wash away the sins of the world. Two great sins are evident in the words of the people here in verses 3 and 4. First, they desired to build a city, which in and of itself is not wrong. But what's the reason for building the city? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, God had specifically mandated them to disperse themselves over the face of the earth. 
In the aftermath of the flood, Genesis 9-1, God commanded Noah and his descendants to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God said, go. And the descendants of Noah said, no. And second, they desired to build a tower, a ziggurat, one of those stepped towers. And they were going to build it to the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a monument to their own glory. So it was happening again. They were trying to become like God. They were trading the glory of the immortal God for the glory of mortal man. This was the very first Babylon, and you can see why it became the symbol for wicked human civilization from that time forth all the way to the book of Revelation. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. A godless people bearing the kind of intellectual and creative gifts that humanity possesses, having a unified language and a unified purpose is capable of unspeakable iniquity. And so the Lord reaches down to slow the corruption of man by confounding their languages and forcibly dispersing them over the face of the earth. But in every corner of the earth in which they settled, jumping back to Genesis chapter 10, they took with them that impulse to build a city, a place of culture and commerce, and to build a tower, a monument to the glory of man and to the glory of the gods whom man creates. And so the earth was filled with sin. So what did Genesis 9-11 to have to teach us about the increase of sin? The genealogy showed us how sin was carried like a contagion in our hearts, spread from generation to generation. There's the linear genealogies. And spread like a branch of a tree over the whole earth. And then the two narratives, the narrative of Noah and the vineyard and the Tower of Babel show two explicit instances in which sin manifests itself in radically destructive, God-dishonoring ways. Sin increased. And it increases still today. But as Sin increased generation after generation, century after century, millennia after millennia. Grace abounded all the more. And that's the second point of these chapters. Where is the grace of God in this dismal picture of human sin? This dismal picture of human history? Well, it's there if you know where to look for it. And you know where to look for it if you've read your New Testament. Turn with me to Genesis eleven twenty six. In the ninth generation from Shem, 
there was born a man named Terah. 11.26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. In the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, Terah is important insofar as he is the father of Abram, who will become Abraham, the father of a multitude. Terah's birthplace, interestingly, factually, and symbolically, significantly, is Babylon, Ur of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. In other words, God reaches down into Babylon, into the very cesspool of human sin, the epicenter of human sin. And he calls out of Babylon a man. Ur was a center for the worship of the moon god as was Haran, where Terah and his family moved after the death of his son. And it was there in Haran, when Abram was 75 years old, that the Lord spoke to him. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So after the generations, the centuries, the millennia of the increase of sin upon the face of the earth, after age upon age upon age of silence from heaven as God let men go their own way, becoming a multitude of tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations in every corner of the globe under heaven, all of whom are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and are worshiping idols, God steps into human history and He calls Abraham. He calls him out of the east. He calls him out of Babylon. He calls him out of idolatry. And He calls him home into the land of promise, the land of Eden. This is the beginning of the reign of grace. By sheer sovereign grace, God would bless Abraham and make of him a nation whose descendants would outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. This great nation would be comprised of a multitude of nations, Genesis 17.5. In other words, it's not just Jewish people, it's multi-ethnic, these descendants of Abraham. And with Abraham and his descendants, God would make an everlasting covenant to be their God and to give them an everlasting possession in the land of promise, which as we have seen is the land of Eden. 
And Abraham believed God's promise, Genesis 15, 6, and he was justified in the sight of God. And so by Genesis chapter 12, the covenant of grace has begun. This covenant was contained within the nation of Israel for 2,000 years through the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, through the time of the exodus in the days of Noah, to the conquest of the land under the command of Joshua, to the days of the judges, then the days of the kings and the ministry of the prophets, to the time of the exile to Babylon and the fall of Israel, to the return from exile and the subjugation of the people by one world power after another, first Persia, then Greece, then finally the Romans. And throughout these 2,000 years, The promise, the covenant of grace remained a promise until the day in Bethlehem when the promised seed came. The one born of a woman, Jesus Christ, the serpent-crushing Redeemer, the second Adam, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-man, who by His righteous life, An obedient death made atonement for sin and merited the eternal blessings of the covenant laid out in Genesis chapter 2. Having been crucified for sinners, he was raised on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now in this age, today, all who hear the word of the gospel and believe the promise as Abraham did are justified in the sight of God and become children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. Our sins are forgiven through the atoning death of Christ, and our sin and our nakedness and our shame is covered in the spotless robes of His righteousness. And one day, known only to the Father, Jesus will arise from His heavenly throne and He will descend to earth with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and he will command the dead to rise for judgment. He will condemn the wicked, and he will gather his redeemed. Then he will speak a word that will renew this fallen creation, and this old passing away earth will be consumed in refining, transforming fire as he recreates a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Eden in which righteousness dwells. And so we, the covenant people, shall be forever in the presence of God to enjoy His fellowship among the communion of the saints in everlasting joy in the garden of the Lord. It's a story of the Bible. As it was in the beginning, so it shall be in the end. This is the promise of Genesis. We began this series with the idea that that Genesis 1-11 to is absolutely foundational in understanding the Bible, and I hope now that you see why. The Catechism asks the question, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? The Bible evidences itself to be the Word of God by the unity of its parts, the heavenliness of its doctrine, and its power to convert sinners and to edify the saints. This is one book. And we've spent 18 weeks studying the opening chapter. But if you've read the opening chapter, 
you're equipped to understand all of the rest. And you will know that the sum storyline of Scripture is, therefore, as sin increased, grace abounded all the more. My Father, I thank You for the abundance of grace that conquers and overcomes the increase of sin. Lord, we are sinners, all of us. We carry within our hearts and within our souls and within our bodies the contagion of sin. It infects every part of our being. It infects every corner of our globe. But there is abundant grace given through Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection and offered to each and every one within the sound of my voice by a kind and gracious God. The Lord is not slow as some men count slowness, but He is patient toward us, for He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here today, congregation of First Baptist Nixa, the purpose of God, the desire of His kind and gracious heart. Come back to the garden. Become one of Abraham's children to whom I gave the promise and whom I sent my son to redeem. Come home. Come home through Christ who is the ark of our salvation. Come home by grace through faith with blood in the way in which I have ordained. Come home. And you may. By repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus and calling upon His name. Are you ashamed? Does your soul feel naked and guilty before God? Are you separated from His love and mercy, His fellowship and His kindness? You may come home.